I have great memories of this room. <clears throat> My teenage sons came in here, and they would turn out the light, clean, clear out all the chairs, turn out the lights, and then one by one they would take a, and hold a mattress in front of them and race to the middle of the room in the dark. And they called it kaboom. You know, there were, there were bodies flying everywhere. Sonic boom. There we go. Yeah. <clears throat> and then I remember this room because there were, over the years, hundreds of children who accepted Jesus in this room at the, at the fairs, the children's fair here on the campus. And uh, I've known and walked with a number of your pastors over the year. I, I, my wife and I pastored up the hill here on Seville back in the 90s. So I'm, I still have roots a little bit in Pacifica. Let's pray. Lord, the Spirit, uh, we ask you today as we talk about a different Advent, um, we ask Lord, that hearts would open to your uh, healing, lifting, uh, caring words from the Scriptures. And uh, we ask you, Lord, that uh, <clears throat> it would stick. Lord, that you put spiritual Velcro in place so that the word of God does not return void. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> um, you're pro if you saw the title for today's message, you're probably wondering, what does that have to do with Christmas? Maybe you haven't seen it. Um, really, the question of the sermon is, <clears throat> what did David do with the head of Goliath? And you're going, what? What? Hey, Merry Christmas. Okay. It's a subject that's filled with all kinds of extra biblical and biblical speculation. Okay. But I want you to think through with me uh, what was happening in that. We're all familiar with the, the story of David and Goliath. <clears throat> this 15-year-old, ruddy-cheeked, beardless guy who ran sheep for his father, Jesse, who had been anointed by Samuel. God had had it with Saul and said, I'm gonna, I have a man I've picked out who has a man after my own heart. And it took some doing, but David was anointed. Time passes. The armies of the Philistines come up and face the armies of Saul and Israel in the Valley of Elat. <clears throat> um, Saul was pretty unaware of the spiritual atmosphere in that place. That valley was used for wicked, wicked things. And he just sort of camped on top of it, totally unaware. And out of the Philistine army comes the giant, probably nine foot six, six and a half, eight, nine foot eight, six cubits on a span. <clears throat> and he was totally armored. He was a warrior from youth. And he, he challenged the whole army of Israel and said, come on, send out a champion. If I win, you serve us. If I lose, we'll serve you. Classic, classic uh, champions battle. <clears throat> and for 30 days, they stared at each other. And then David rolls in. David has been sent by his father to carry cheese and bread to the captains because that's how the army was supported. You know, they, they didn't have camp didn't have a camp followers, cook tents, etc. They had to, you know, the people of Israel had to support the army. And so Jesse sent his son, pulled him off sheep duty, sent him down the mountain, 14 miles to that valley. And when he arrives, there is this giant challenging Israel, cursing Israel by his gods. Now, you know the end of that, okay? 
Goliath falls, and David takes his head. <clears throat> in 1 Samuel chapter 17, there's a very interesting little passage in my case, or my glasses. I'm going to need them. Thank you. They arrive up here and you go, whoa. In 1 Samuel 17, chapter 53 and, 50, uh, 53 and 54, it says, And the sons of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and plundering their camps. Okay, the Philistine army sees the champion go down and they go, time to go. And they ran. But they left behind their camp. They left behind all their goods. They left behind armor and things like that. Thank you. <clears throat> so everybody and the whole army is focused on Get all we can out of this camp. What is David doing? He, he's the one who won the battle. But he's doing something totally different. Verse 54 says, And David took the Philistine's head, probably a basketball-sized, I mean, a gory, awful trophy, okay? And he brought it to Jerusalem. Hello? And put the weapons in his tent. So let's do it in reverse. The weapons in his tent. David didn't live at home. If you remember, Jesse had to go send somebody to find him because he was on the hills with the sheep. And when it says David put the weapons of Goliath in his tent, that very likely was exactly what it was. It was a little shelter somewhere out with the sheep. <clears throat> but he valued those trophies. And second, it says he brought the head of Goliath to Jerusalem. Now we're going to try to go figure out what is going on there. We're going to go backwards in time. Time travel. Joshua chapter 15. <clears throat> okay. When um, Joshua is charged to take the land, this is, this, these are the wars of Canaan. The people of Israel come across the Jordan, and, and Jericho falls, and then the sections of the land are distributed to the, the, this tribe of Dan gets to the north. The tribe of Benjamin is to the south. Judah is to the south. Then there's the tribes on the seacoast and the tribes that are in the high places. Okay? And in each case, the Lord says, you take it, but you're going to have to fight for it. It's not, it's not going to be free. You have to go fight for it. And he sends, if, through Joshua, the armies of Israel to go conquer the Canaanite peoples. Okay, the Canaanites were descended from the Amorites. Do you remember what God said about the Amorite people to, you know, to um, 400 years previous? Actually, it's more than that. Slightly more than 400 years previously. God said, the sin of the Amorite is not yet full, so I'm going to send your descendants, Abraham, down. You know, we, we know they went to Egypt. Didn't tell Abraham where they were going, but they were going to be slaves they were going to be enslaved for 400 years, and then he would bring them out. The Canaanites descended from the Amorites. And when God says the sin of the Amorites is not yet full, he was, what was God doing? He was reaching out. He was speaking truth. He was, in some fashion, modeling for, the, for those people saying, this is not the way you worship me. And they ignored him, and they worshiped their pantheon, the Baals and the Asherah. <clears throat> Verse 63, Joshua 15 says, And now, as for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the sons of Judah could not drive them out. So the Jebusites lived with the sons of Judah at Jerusalem until this day. What the, what those, the armies of Israel did was they took the donut and left the hole. 
all these high places, all these armored, you know, uh, structure, you know, they've been built, these high hills, they had a source of water, they had a source of food, and they could withstand siege. And so Israel took the easy parts of the land and left the hard parts. In this case, the Jebusites were Canaanite peoples who lived in a citadel, a rock-walled citadel, in what we know today to be Jerusalem. And it was a, such a daunting piece of rock, they called it the Jebusite. Judas, Judah and Benjamin, it was sat on the border of Judah and Benjamin. Okay, we'll see what they did. It says here that Judah tried, but couldn't conquer them, and so they just lived with them. Now I'll turn to the book of Judges, chapter 1, verse 8. It says, the sons of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the sons of Judah went down to fight. Okay, what they got was all the suburbs. Judah came in and burned out the marketplace. They took everything except, remember, they took the, they took the donut, left the hole. They left this, this citadel of rock, defensible high point, could not capture it. Go down the page. Verse 21, it says, And the, the sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So they tried, failed. So the Jebusites have lived with the sons of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Turn a couple of pages. Judges chapter 3. All right. Um, verse 4 to verse 8 says, And they were for testing Israel. They listed five lords of the Philistines, the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hivites, uh, and, and those were all scattered around. The, the Lord says, I left those in place for the testing of Israel to find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord. The answer was, no, they didn't. And the sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites. Okay? And the sons of Israel did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. All right, when God sent the people, sent the armies into Israel to take the land of Canaan, his instructions were, you kill every man, woman, child, and animal. That's scorched earth. And you would say, wait a minute, Dick, that's, that's, gen that's genocide. And the answer to that is no. That's judgment. Because every man, woman, child, and animal in the Canaanite population were shot through with venereal disease. And the Lord said, have nothing to do with them. That beautiful woman, you're a widower. That's a beautiful woman. I want her for my wife. She brings her gods and she brings her disease. That young man, he'd make a great husband for my daughter. He brings his skills and his strength and his disease. Those flocks and herds, same thing, strength and disease. Devastating, devastating consequences when Israel didn't obey. The Lord said, you obey me, I'll bless you. You disobey me, you got, you got all kinds of bad stuff coming your way. They didn't obey him. And they turned further and they began to worship and serve the Baals and the Asherah. They got involved in trying to pacify and draw on the pantheon of the Canaanites. Baal. Okay, Baal, how do we worship you? Ritual prostitution. For fertility. 
we try and get Baal to bring, to bring the rain so that we have plants, okay? I mean, it's gross. It's gross. But that, that was, that's history. It's gross. We all have four or 500 generations that we come from individually. All of us have practiced something similar in our, amongst our ancestors before us. All of us. That's why grace is so awesome. <laughs> okay. Now here's David who takes this head of this defeated foe and he walks 14 miles uphill. He bypasses, you know, he drops, drops the weapons, drops the weapons. He probably had a cart because he was carrying bread, 10 loaves of bread and cuts of cheese and stuff. He probably had a cart. So he loaded the weapons. He loaded the head 14 miles back up the hill. He bypasses Bethlehem, goes to his tent, unloads the weapons. Then he walks around Jerusalem. He doesn't come right over the hill from, from Bethlehem to the Jebusite. He walks around it. He goes out to the east. And he comes in from the north until finally he's standing on top of a hill. And he displays this bloody awful thing. And he says, you're next. Now, what happens to David? Okay. Jonathan, the son of Saul, loves David, is bonded with David, makes a, makes a covenant with David. Says, here's my robe. Here's my armor. Put this on. David becomes the leader of Saul's war band. He is able to accomplish more with fewer men because they love him and they follow him. Okay, he marries the princess, Tamar. He marries Saul's daughter. And finally, Saul has had it. He's jealous. <clears throat> and he tries to kill David. And Samuel, excuse me, uh, Jonathan helps him, gives him a heads up. Bad stuff's coming. Better duck, better get out of Dodge. And he does. He, he flees into the wilderness of Judah to the cave of Adullam. And with that, all the people, all the men in Israel who could not stand Saul, who loved David and who wanted to worship God, they flowed into that cave. And for 16 years, 15, 16 years, they were part of David's community. And they went out to fight together. And they honored God together. And finally, at the start of, at uh, the end of First Samuel, Saul and three of his sons are wiped away in a battle by, uh, against, the, against the Philistines again. They're just a recurrent, there's a recurrent war, warlike people that keep coming. Saul dies at his own hand. He falls on his own sword. And his son Jonathan dies, and two of his other sons die. And the word comes to David out in the wilderness, and he says, what do I do? And the Lord says, go up. You go up to Hebron. And he arrives in Hebron, up on the ridge, up high. Okay, if you're looking north, Jericho and the Dead Sea is downhill. 2,800 feet downhill, below sea level. To your left, the Mediterranean. It's out there in the haze. Okay, so he's on the spine, standing on the spine. And he arrives there, and the, and the leaders of Judah come to David and say, would you be our king? And he, he is anointed already to be king over all of them, but he accepts the rulership over Judah and Benjamin, if you will, over Judah for the next seven and a half years. That makes him about 38, 36, 38 years old. 
Okay, now let's turn to um, 2 Samuel chapter 5. Okay. All the descendants of Saul have been done away with except for Mephibosheth. That's another story. Okay. But um, now Israel, the other ten tribes, come to him and say, we want you to reign over all of us. We want you all, we want, to be, we want you to be king over all of us. So now, the, the anointing to be king that came from the horn, of oil, the, the horn of oil that was poured over his head by Samuel, that has come to pass. Took a while. Okay? But now he is king of Jerusalem. He, excuse me, he is, he, he is king of Israel and Judah together is what the text says. Verse 6, now... The king and his men, wait a minute, he's anointed, he's crowned, and what is the first order of business? Scripture says first order of business is we're going to the Jebusite stronghold, we're going to Jerusalem. Text says the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land. Okay, they're just Canaanites. They're just doing the old dirty stuff. And they said to David, You shall not come in here, but the blind and lame shall turn you away. Thinking, David cannot enter here. Okay? This is classic pre-battle banter. Some of you, Ian, where are you? (laughs) Ian remembers the scene in... in, um, What? Monty Python's Python's Holy Grail. Yes. Oh, yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, The man is up on the, the battlements. And, and you know, they say, well, you're, you're going to surrender here. No, no, you, you know, yeah. your mother was a hamster and your father smelled of elderberries. <laughs> it, it's part of the ancient, you know, let's, let's see if I can splatter you worse than you can splatter me. Okay? In the case of the Jebusites, they said, a lame man and a blind man would be able to withstand you. They're so convinced that nothing's going to get at us inside this citadel. Verse 7, nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. Now, how did he do that? David said on that day, whoever shall strike the Jebusites, let him reach the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul through the water tunnel. So what was, where did David start in this story? He started as a shepherd. Okay, and he wandered all over that region because that's what you do with sheep. Sheep will, sheep will eat themselves down to bare dirt if you don't move them. So you, you lead your sheep. Middle Eastern shepherds led. They don't push. They, don't, they didn't have dogs. They led their sheep. And so David led them to fresh pasture nearly daily. Okay, let them eat, move on. Eat, move on. Don't decimate what you left behind. Okay, and in the process, he, would, he was all over. So where was Bethlehem from Jerusalem? Five miles down the road. Nothing for a shepherd. He wandered his way all the way up to the stronghold. Okay, now Judah controlled everything around. Judah and Benjamin controlled everything around the citadel. So he's free to wander up there. He's not threatened by that. Okay? And, and undoubtedly, on a day when there was a violent rainstorm. Biblical speculation here, okay? It's not in the text. Biblical speculation. 
Okay, David is sheltering up against the rock under, under, the, under this citadel, this stone, on, on, you know, it's, you can't get in. Now, in the ancient world, those high places had to have a source of water. There weren't any springs in Jerusalem. It's rock. Okay? They relied on rainfall. The problem is to fill a cistern, fill a, you know, a um, plastered rock storage area, you had to put clean stuff in if you're going to expect to drink it. So they would seal everything up. The powerful rain comes in, and it's, it's beating. It's just thundering down on top of this, of this citadel. And it's sloped intentionally because they want to have that first flush, operant word, of rain sweep everything off the ground. Manure, dead animals, nothing you want in your water supply, folks. Okay, it's all just picked up and swept away so that the, the remaining rain can be, you know, when, when that first wash goes through and the, ground, and the stone has been washed clean, then you put up your barriers and you route that rainwater into the cistern. Well, where does that first, if you will, flush of cleansing water, where does that go? It goes down a water channel, a water course. Now, we know from archaeology that there were a number of those shafts in the limestone that went down through, uh, down through the underground below the citadel. They found, the archaeologists have found them, Okay. David is pressed up against this rock trying not to drown in this, in this raging rainstorm. And he can feel it and he can hear it coming. And here comes this roaring torrent of dirty water from somewhere. And it pours out at ground level. You think he checked it out? Because what he did here was he turns to his army and he says... Reach them through the water tunnel. Turns it into a contest. And he says, the one who gets up to there first, the one who gets to the top first, is going to be chief of staff. Okay? Now, let's talk about Advent. Okay? We recognize that word from the Latin, and we were in the in the ancient church, you know, in modern church, we remember it and we honor it and we get ready for the Christmas season. Okay? But there was an anointed one who came to Jerusalem a thousand years before the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. And he brought with him this symbol, if you will, this prophetic act of bringing the head of Goliath and displaying it to the Jebusites because David said to them, when I reign and rule, you're going down. Here's where biblical speculation kicks in. There are those who feel very firmly that David buried the head of Goliath on top of Golgotha. Golgotha is an, a Chaldaic, Aramaic uh, word. Uh, that just means looks like a skull. So if you stand across Jerusalem on the, on the Mount of Olives, other side of the Kidron Valley, and you look, what is it, mile and a half maybe, airline, that rock face has caves in it. 
And those caves looked like eyes. And given the right sun angle, that rock face looked like a skull. And it was described as that. Looks like a skull. Now, we don't know that it was used as an ancient execution ground, but certainly we know that Jesus was led out with, up the Via Doloroso, out the, out the city gate, out the western wall, and he up to the top of this hill. <clears throat> David, who was anointed. David, who came a thousand years before Jesus. It is said in Jewish history, not church history, in Jewish history, that David buried the head of Goliath in that place. Now, what was it? What did he do? David conquered by the power of the Lord, the one who had cursed him by his gods, the one who was going to take all of Israel and enslave it. Okay? Now, what did the blood of Jesus accomplish on that execution site in the first, what we call first advent, okay? Second's still coming, at least for Messiah. It's coming. Okay. He, Jesus took the sin and shame and guilt and fear and washed it away with his blood. Colossians chapter 2. says, see to it, this is Paul writing to the Colossian church in Colossae. It's in modern day Turkey. Okay, not far. It's not far from Ephesus, but it's there. <clears throat> see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceptions according to the tradition of man, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him, in Jesus, you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Verse 13, and when you were dead in your transgressions, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all your transgressions, having canceled them out, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So, in that advent where David comes, he cancels the possibility of slavery and fear, serving under the Philistines, serving under their gods. Okay? When Jesus comes, he cancels all sin and all guilt and all fear and all shame by the washing of his blood. Now, <clears throat> we have around us today those who worship similar gods and goddesses, if you will, that provide a certain level of control to their life. Uh, you call them modern Canaanites. And, um, and I think God has called us as the body of Christ 
to love on them to the extent that they suddenly become aware that there's another alternative because what they're working on isn't going to work anymore. <clears throat> when we first took over ministry, gosh, 17 years ago, Montero, thereabouts, there were probably seven active folks who were doing blatant witchcraft in the town of Montero. And a little team gathered up around us, including our sons and a bunch of other people and families. And we began to just walk and pray through the town. Walk and pray. Walk and pray for that house. Pray for that house. Pray for that house. In fact, I can sit on my back deck and I have that city memorized and I can pray house by house. I know them. I pray for them. That house, that house, down that street. If you do it 32 times, it sticks. Okay? Over time, some of those people decided that their stuff didn't work in Montera anymore, and they left town. And there was a shift in the spiritual atmosphere. So I challenge you to think that through a little bit. Come Christmas, you know, this is kind of ordinary. Oh, it's another Christmas. Okay, but we got people that are worshiping anything. Anything about Jesus. They, you know, they, they, they don't want anything to do with him. They, they want to be in control of their life. They want to, you know, be able to just live like they want that's Canaanite. Because <laughs> it produces the same thing. It results in the same thing. You go love on those people. Don't despise them. You know, this is an age of grace. You're not going in to kind of slash and cut and burn and throw them out. You know, that's, that's not... Holy Spirit takes care of that. Okay? Not us. <clears throat> so on this day, as we start the season of Advent, I want you to think back with me. A thousand years before Jesus, that God had hand-chosen a man after his own heart anointed him to be king, empowered him to go to war, and empowered him to lead. And as he led, he was both prophet, priest, and king. And he is a forerunner. He's a picture of what happens on that cross. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we don't understand ancient things very well, but what we do know is you're playing the long game. You're, you're busy uh, working through all the, the prophecies that you gave. You're busy, Lord. You're constantly restoring us and cleansing us and lifting us. You know, and Lord, I pray for those here today that have a stronghold, that have someplace publicly or privately, Lord, where they just want to be their own boss. Lord, uh, that's going down. Sooner or later, it's going down. This is a great Sunday. This would be a great time to, to say, all right, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Deal with this stronghold. And Lord, uh, uh, just as David's burial of, of uh, the head of Goliath somewhere there around Jerusalem, just as he did that, that was a prophetic act of what was coming. Um, it was a promise that God wasn't done and Lord, um, your, your blood shed on Calvary, uh, on Golgotha, Lord, the place that looked like a skull, Lord, that also is a prophet, prophetic thing, that you're not finished. You're not finished with us. So we ask you, please, Lord, uh, prepare our hearts now for what remains of this little time together and for what you have for us through this season. Um, Lord, if there's uh, strongholds to deal with, uh, people are sitting around you this morning who have dealt with those strongholds know exactly how to get at it. They know the water course. They can identify it. 
that can help you overcome that. We ask for Holy Spirit power to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.